Another week where Tenet can't be the answer. In honor of an American pickle, what movie from the last year would make the most sense to someone trapped in pickle brine for 100 years? <laughs> uh, I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Little Women because 100 years ago, they also loved Bob Odenkirk, damn it. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Avengers Endgame because 100 years ago, they also loved Captain America's butt. Hey, it's me, David the Seven. I'm going to go with The Lighthouse, because you don't even have to make the transition to color. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 311. It is Pandemic 21. It is the week of Wednesday, August 5th, 2020. That was the day that in 1926, almost 100 years ago, Harry Houdini stayed in a coffin underwater for an hour and a half before escaping. No, he didn't. It was not. crazy. Well, he probably had like a secret like tank of oxygen. Yeah, but that was secret, a, secret tube. That was, a, that was a magic trick. He stayed underwater for an hour and a half we don't know okay okay sorry yeah, yeah there's you, nothing nothing not inaccurate in what i said for an hour and a half i would not i would not agree with that i mean um, i would stay underwater for an hour and a half if i was in one of those uh light deprivation what are those those called from like sensory deprivation tanks? sensory deprivation tanks, yeah. i have a uh, gift certificate to one of those um that would it's be a like, great time to do that right I it mean, seems like the one it's like i don't really want to go in the one where they like put the lid over you that feels very uncomfortable to me but this is like you're basically in, like a room in a bathtub full of salt so you just float better that sounds kind of nice like the dead sea yeah I, yeah doesn't I that seem know. nice and i'm sure that's probably pretty clean like i wouldn't worry about getting oh yeah in a salt bath that's a good question. I, I have know. basically put off going given COVID, but maybe I thought maybe I had a time. horrible thought today where it was just like every so often I would pay money to get a massage because mm. that felt really good. Yes. And mm-hmm. somebody else is a trained professional to make that to make, to, to do that. When am I going to do that again? That sucks. I, don't know. And I, I know. I don't know. Then again, it's not really like a contact problem. So. I shouldn't worry about people like rubbing. If you had a massage therapist wear a mask and you wore a mask and they like had good cleaning. I mean, it's a, I, it seems like a a similar risk to getting your haircut. I think I'm going to wait a little while longer to get a massage, but you know, we'll keep it on. Have you got a haircut? I got a hair, I got a haircut. I did. Wait, we didn't talk Um, about this? You've been gone. Welcome back. I know I was gone last week. Did you get a haircut last week? Let's hear the crowd roar from Endgame, but when Katie shows up. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it's Katie! She came out of the portal! She's back in the way! Yeah, you got a haircut last week? That's exciting. Yeah, I can't remember if we talked about it on the episode last week, but after the whole uh, talking about COVID, <laughs> it was like, maybe mention less about talking about COVID. But yeah, it was like, I wore a mask. It was like going to the doctors. It was, uh, super social distance minus the person who was cutting my hair, but I wore the mask the whole time. Uh, yeah. I felt, I felt like it was in a very clean experience. I also booked the first haircut of the day at this place. Mm. Um, because yes, I'm paranoid, I guess. Uh, going at the end of the day seems worse. Um, so I decided to be the first one at the door, and they won't even let you touch the door at this salon mm-hmm. to get my hair cut. They, you buzz a button. Also, they have come up with um, – you can buy button buzzer or like button finger oh, things yeah. now. I should invest in one of those if I'm going hardcore. They have some that will do touch screens, like at an ATM or something. I should – I, I got to go full – Bubble Boy. I'm allowing all this because we don't have any reviews, but continue. Oh, shit, yeah. (laughs) We're reviewing life now. Yeah. Uh, Fauci says we're supposed to wear goggles now. He does? I mean, he thinks we need to be covering ourselves in saran wrap. Face shields? That's right. When I have gone to gas stations, I've just, like, taken, like, one of those bleach wipes and, like, put it over my hand as I've used the thing. I do that. Yeah, like that seems like a reasonable thing yeah. to do other than like not, and not having like a special button pushing device. I was wearing gloves to the store, to everywhere for a while, but then mm-hmm. they told you, you don't I haven't have done to really gloves. do that. You probably got to wash your hands. But every week I'm like, what am I supposed to be doing? I don't know. Just cover Dave, what are you doing? Uh, let's see. I wash my hands every time I leave the house at least. And then in the car, there's hand sanitizer. That's for every time you get back in the car. 
Yep. That seems about right. And masks all the time. But I don't have to well, traverse the world as much as some people. Mmm. Uh, who? Wait, who are you talking about Katie? No, uh, just any, to the beach. No, just yeah, people. Katie people who have to... David's also on vacation. I don't even know what That's that entails, right. but I think he went to the Unabomber shack. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's an Airbnb uh, now. That seems safe. I mean, I when I went to the beach, I, we went to the beach house and did not leave it the entire time we were there. Um, but I did witness plenty of irresponsible behavior from a distance um, that was fascinating to see. Like, there was a bachelorette party happening next door, hmm. and they, like, got picked up by a party bus one night and went somewhere. I don't know where. Yeah, so and it was, like, being in a different reality. It was very strange. This does seem to be the new problem, as if we needed new problems. But uh, here in New Jersey, I feel like we do have other problems. But sure, here in New Jersey, we're just not we're not getting that many cases anymore. At least where where I am, um, which is close to New York. That's we were a super hot zone in the beginning, um, and now we're we're doing much 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 better. Which is why we have some confidence in opening certain things back up. But um, of course, the Jersey Shore is like they keep partying. And the governor is, like, trying to step in to get kids to stop partying so much. And um, that's funny. Thank you, MTV, for creating Jersey Shore and spreading COVID in the long run. I blame MTV. I mean, there's never been a Myrtle Beach MTV show. and yet I'm, a, MTV I'm officially there, a, so. a boomer blaming MTV for <laughs> ruining it. I mean, it does make me very life. glad that I have children who are not teenagers who I can control and keep inside. I literally got my antibodies from this, this older woman who was asking me questions about my family and i'm like well what about you what do you got you got kids she's like yeah i got a uh 15 year old son i'm like oh what's he up to these days that must be tough he's like i don't, I don't even know where all the, he just called me and apparently he's at the beach with his friends and i'm like you're giving me the antibody test <laughs> do you think that's responsible i am not here to judge i'm not here to judge. wow um well anyway what are we supposed to be talking about? We, we have, have a podcast where gone. we talk about people are people are. I think we are maybe going over the line here too much talking about COVID getting real. One person tweeted at me about us getting too real, so maybe that's not a. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, a wide survey. We want to get real on this podcast, right? We want to talk about. Our if lives. you would like to outweigh the one person that tweeted <laughs> at patches and is now dictating the direction of this podcast, please. <laughs> Write a review on iTunes <laughs> that we could happened. read in this space, and then this it will be your you space and not our space, because it doesn't need to be our space. We're going to do a podcast right now. Beyonce dropped a visual album on Disney Plus. <laughs> it's her visual accompaniment to last year's The Gift, an album based on the themes of The Lion King, the live action remake. Is that the full subtitle? I, I don't know, probably. It's not, it sounds like Precious. Based on a story by... Based on the themes of The Lion King. Well, the, 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 way they, the way it went through, like, a Disney, John Favreau, Lion King CGI remake through Beyonce into what is now the Blackest King visual album is, like, part of the interest to me because it's like she took... Uh, she made an album inspired by the story of The Lion King and Black is King also uses uh, clips uh, from the actual movie, voice clips uh, in time. So it can't really divorce itself from the Lion King story. But because it's a visual album and not like a narrative film, it has a lot more freedom to uh, explore those themes, I think, very broadly. And Beyonce has applied it to, I guess, uh, like a... I know I saw a headline on Polygon that called it Afrofuturism, but I'm going to at least ping it to reassessing blackness from a position of like zero shame, uh, from like birth to kingship to like struggle, uh, is like really interesting, as interesting as making that character a lion, I think. And a lot less interesting is making it like a prince, uh, like a white prince um, that we've seen, like Sword in the Stone, King Arthur, like. So, Black is King. I think it's okay. Oh, go ahead. 
And no, it's just where you, when you're like, it's as interesting as making Hamlet about lions. And like, this is where I get like so tripped up on Black as King, which is like incredibly interesting, except in all the ways that it's about the Lion King when mm. it becomes insane, mm-hmm. uh, is kind of where I landed on it. Yeah. It's um, like a, a really yeah. uplifting, colorful film full of, of references and history and Beyonce's personal life. And then all of a sudden, Billy Eichner is doing Timon's <laughs> voice. And you're like, what the fuck? Or like, or even James Earl Jones as Mustafa, yeah. which is like very like regal, iconic thing. But you're like, no, no, is this? about mustafa i guess it's i mean in a way it is it is it's about i know it's about taking this story and and making it authentically black or authentically beyonce and and, or like specifically african like there's you know it's it's more than just about blackness it's like an african-centric version of that which uh the lion king both versions i would say are not sorry jtt (laughs) <laughs> I mean, the whole, like, this, it, the, the whole presence of Beyonce in Lion King and the album that she did with it did feel like part of, like, Disney covering its ass, being like, no, 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 this time we're making Lion King with black people, and that makes it yeah. culturally correct, even though it's about animals. Um, and it, it, it felt like corporate ass covering. Um, this visual album is far more interesting than that, and, like, it, it doesn't feel like Beyonce did it to be like, okay, here I am to be a good partner and, like, help you, Disney. Um, so it complicates that in a lot of ways. It does not make me want to go watch The Lion King at all. Well, yeah, oh, I think I that's... I never what... watch that Lion King movie ever. Again. Oh, yeah. Fuck that movie. <laughs> I, but that's what makes it sort of interesting, is Beyonce sort of took a Disney IP, which they're generally very uh, protective about and sort of morphed it i mean that made a comparison to java where it feels like sort of like her michael jackson period where she like took like these broad themes and morphed it through like visual photography and like large crowd shots of uh you know people of color black people uh basically exclusively i don't know why is it people of color and made it like grand but not in any sort of way that i would call it like disney necessarily she mm. she was able to transform uh the property out to, to like a beyonce property which you know presumably she'll be able to like tour on this album at some point in the future yeah. apparently Although the album oh, sorry go well, the album came out last year and was like kind of like came and went. Like the song "Spirit" was like the Oscar song. It's like fine. It's at the very end of the visual album. It's probably you know what like- the song is great. Um, what? And, and here's what here's what's surprising. I was totally with you before "Black Is King." Like standalone, and especially in the context of the Lion King, that song does nothing for me. It was a total whiff. In as like the culmination of Black is King, the fi- like she has the the chorus behind her singing the song. I thought it was a jubilant song. I thought it was a, a fitting ending to this visual album. I, I really that the album itself and the songs that have been released leading up to this really had no impression on me. I felt like they weren't capturing the zeitgeist, and then this this visual album came around and it was all cohesive and it all made sense and it all it really is more even more complimentary I think than and this is probably sacrilege but more complimentary than lemonade for me in terms of like fusing visuals and songs the songs are better with the visuals I think lemonade mm. was really successful in that way um, but I could listen to that album before and after and I, I felt like I was getting something out of it and here for me it's the full package is, is what's fun about Black is King See, I would say that, like, Brown Skin Girl is, like, a much more jubilant song than Spirit, which feels like – Spirit, like, with the chorus, it feels like like Man in the Mirror or something when you talk about Michael Jackson. Like, it's like, well, you know, what's a serious song when you bring in the chorus of people and they're just singing in the background. This is what we're going to play over the credits of our big, like, Hollywood movie. It's about yeah, I mean, the chorus, chorus is great, but I would rather see, like, Lupita and, like, all of the, like, women dressed up as ballet dancers that they have in Brown Skin Girl, which is, like, feels like a more energetic and, like, and personal song. Like, the parts of Black is King that feel weird to me are where it's like, here is my Disney song, or here is Billy Eichner's voiceover. And then you get um, Brown Skin Girl, and what's the one with, um, where they're in the mansion, and it's, uh, and Jay-Z's in it, which one's, which song is that? Um, Mood Forever, I I'm looking at the track list. Anyway, the one where they're in the mansion and like she's synchronized swimming. Like that feels so weird. It yes, has nothing to do with Lion King and it's great. Um, so the further it gets away from the Lion King, the happier I am with it um, overall. I don't disagree. And yet I think what's cool about this movie is that it feels 
It doesn't feel Disney, and that was my biggest worry, that it was going to feel yeah. like a hacky version of Lemonade somehow, or or a plastic version that felt in tune. I don't know what the equivalent on Disney would be, like almost a Disney nature documentary or something with Beyonce songs. Um, that was my big fear, and, and it's nothing like that. It's much closer to Lemonade than I could have ever imagined, but in this more like celebratory tone, and it still feels fitting. It still feels like... The Lion King, in the way, it feels like a Disney movie. Like, I wish this was, I wish The Lion King didn't exist, the second one, the remake, and this is what we got. This is a better way of interpreting things of the past than a photorealistic remake and an interpretation, uh, a theatrical expression of this property is so much more interesting and valuable. Um, and maybe, maybe, I, I think there's a way to do this where you didn't have Billy Eichner is Timon. That's the one that's really sticking with me. Everything else almost makes sense, but like Billy Eichner, I just don't want to hear that voice in in the middle of these so, songs. So, all right, like, now what you're saying is that instead of doing the Little Mermaid remake, that Taylor Swift should do a Little Mermaid <laughs> visual album. Is that what I'm saying? I don't want my saying. I don't want my. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, well, actually, I, I would say that's closer to what I would rather see than. Yeah, I mean, I think we would all rather see many things other than a like a photorealistic live action remake but this of a feels Disney like movie. What uh, Julie Taymor did with Lion King on stage. This feels like taking an idea and trying to use a new medium or use a creative inroad to to find something new to say about this material and reinterpret it. And um, I, I I've never understood the kind of mesmerizing effect Disney the brand has on people. It's just something that will, I'll never, I, I have lots of friends who up until the pandemic would be like at Disney world four or five times a year. They just live and breathe the merch and they love seeing the people in costumes and like the, the, you know, the iconography gets them and, and it's sacrosanct and they wouldn't want to see it. I mean, maybe that's why people like the photo realist, realistic version of, of Lion King. But I wanted to see it torn apart and reinterpreted and, and made into something like Black is King because it, uh, at the end of the day, like, it's astonishing how much art is packed into this thing. It really feels authentic, which for everything on Disney, I'm, Hamilton might be the only other thing that I'd call authentic that's on Disney Plus right now where, I mean, they I mean, went the to Africa. I mean, the sound of music is on Disney Plus. Like, there are legit classics on no, Disney Plus. Well, I would, I would separate classics from some, like, authentic art no offense to the or like a tourist it's not a, i think we're getting away from a tourist because it's it feels like a bad word now and it feels like bro and aggro but i guess i guess i mean that i, I, I think mean, of the it sound of to music, beyonce like she is definitely the auteur of black is king but for this it's like hiring the right poets hiring the right directors working with the right collaborators going to africa making this movie creating Art pieces that live in the world, creating dances that use locations um, and to 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 meld visual art, costume, and performance art. I mean, it just feels like a confluence of so many choices and ideas. And maybe I'm just getting like intoxicated by the amount of money they clearly spent on this. I was going to say earlier that apparently, uh, and I don't know how true this is. This is kind of reported that uh, Disney signed a deal with Beyonce for like a hundred million dollars to make three movies or three somethings for some maybe theatrical. Do you think black is King was supposed to go to theaters? No, right? No, <sighs> no, maybe like a special event. And then they would have put it on Disney plus like a week later. Would have been or something. Cool. I would have definitely watched this. I mean, it's an hour and a half long. It's a movie. It's a real movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Make it Oscar eligible. Yeah. But uh, so apparently she's she's in the Disney business for a while, but she's she got to do something that feels pretty authentic. Um, and I like that this one isn't as referential to Beyonce. I am not a Beyonce historian, and I know that a lot of her fans are, you know, in deep on like her relationships with Jay-Z, her relationships with her fellow Destiny's Child uh uh, singers and like everything that lemonade was full of the tea spilled. But, um, this one, I love, to be honest, I like, I love Afrobeat. I love Fela Kuti. I love all the sounds of this album, maybe even more than lemonade. This is just my total jam and making it about culture and heritage, um, and celebration of just like, Here's a bunch of people in beautiful costumes. Like, look at them. Look at how every person in the world can be beautiful. I just, I really responded to that. I think this is awesome. Fuck the line. Well, I, 
I said to you guys while I was watching it that like Lupita Nyong'o being in this, like just like looking beautiful and smiling at the camera and wearing gorgeous dresses. I was like, yeah. While Beyonce sings her name, if I recall. Yeah, correctly. like pretty, pretty like Lupita something like posing for the camera. Um, yeah, more of that. Do you think Beyonce will ever sing our names in a song? No. 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 Did, what about Black is King made you feel like that will ever happen? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. Tonight I might fall in love, depending on how you owe me. I'm glad that I'm calming down. Can't let no one come control me. Keep dancing and call it love. She fights it by falling slowly. If ever you are in doubt. Remember what mama told me, brown skin girl, your skin just like her. For our mini segment tonight, we're going to talk about something that we are catching up with, uh, and so are so many people, because no one was watching this show on its original platform. It's called Harley Quinn. It is a DC animated comedy series that actually premiered, I want to say, like, last fall. Um, there's been two seasons because that's how animation works for some reason. They just pump it. Like there's like three seasons of every animated show every year for some reason. They just churn these episodes out. And, um, it debuted last fall on, uh, DC Universe, a platform that no one uses. Um, from and what I can Does it know. exist anymore? Yes. It's just folded into HBO Max? It yes, exists. it exists. Well, Katie, the reason it exists is because it's not just a streaming service. It's not just a streaming service. DC Universe (laughs) coming to you. Um, no, it's, it's, you get the street, you get the, some DC movies. Again, licensed stuff means like Batman will, 1989 will be there like one day and then next month will be gone. So you still have that shit, even though DC owns it. Um, you have animated shows from the past, but you also have comics. You can read DC comics on DC Universe. So it's, and there's, uh, forums that if you are a DC fan, you can interact with other DC fans. It's supposed to be a one-stop shop for that kind of stuff. And it's had its own show, Titans. Uh, Katie, you were a big fan of Titans, I believe. Yeah. No, I, uh, it rings a bell. I've heard of it. Okay. Um, and Doom Patrol. Uh, which is another super popular, critically acclaimed series. That is, uh, now second season just went to HBO Max. So they're like, fuck it. Uh, and now Harley Quinn is all on HBO Max. The first two seasons that have premiered. The second season is, is brand new ish. Um, Dave, you, you caught up with Harley Quinn. What do you make of Harley Quinn? Which is like hard R. It's not like any other DC animated stuff. I guess it's kind of an extension of the Margot Robbie version of Harley Quinn. Maybe maybe you can suss this out for me. What do you what do you make of this show in the grand context of DC Comics media and is it good? Uh yeah, it's good. It's really smart. Um and it calls it's uh basically it, Harlequin breaks up with the Joker in the first episode and sets off to be her own villain that's better than the Joker and join the Legion of Doom and whatnot and it's um it's more smartly written than other animated things, which I think is a benefit of it being for adults. I think the writing is really where the adult stuff shines through. Like having blood and action and being able to kill characters is like a bonus and like fun. But if you're like are already not into like animated DC shows, this one, you know, has okay action, but is just really whip smart with the way that it's written. Harley Quinn moves in with Poison Ivy, who, like, they obviously have, like, a platonic love for each other, but Ivy's just not going to take Harley's shit, but knows that she has to kind of, like, touch the stove in order to learn things. Uh, she gathers together a whole bunch of misfit hero or villains to form a team, like King Shark and Clayface and Master Dr. Psycho. Dr. Psycho. Dr. Psycho. That classic character, Dr. Psycho. Yeah, who has been canceled. You could have told me that was a well-known character, and I would have been like, okay. Well, he's recently been canceled for calling Wonder Woman the C-word, so he can't be, uh, you know, a high-profile villain anymore. So he joins Harlequin to prove that he's okay with uh, women. And uh, that's sort of the tone that uh, the entire series takes. It sort of looks at the DC Universe from a female perspective that isn't afraid to call out the weird shit. Uh, like the villain Kite Man has a reoccurring role, and he's dumb. He just has a kite on his back. Uh, very early on 
in a parody of the Riddler's uh, Batman Forever plot where he's going to drop Chase Meridian or Robin into a vats of uh, vats of acid. He sets up the exact same thing with uh, Harlequin and Batman for the Joker and the Joker chooses Batman because really the Joker like loves Batman. And that's where Harley's self actualization starts. Uh, from what I understand, the second season gets even better at about commenting about on the DC universe and sort of like comics fandom while, uh, portraying Harlequin's rise in villainy and the Joker's, uh, slow decline, apparently. But so I'm looking forward to it. I really like it. It's like it. a Stars Born kind of scenario. Yeah, that's what it seems like. But uh, a lot more. Alan Tudyk plays both the Joker and Clayface, and he's really given it his all in both of those performances. Um, it's 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 pretty sweet. You're enjoying yeah, it, Matt. I I am. I you know there's this influx of Rick and Morty esque shows. Um, uh, Rick and Morty, Solar Opposites. I think this new Star Trek show, Lower Decks. I haven't seen any of that yet, but that is that's from, from a Rick and Morty uh, writer, yeah, a Rick and Morty writer, and it looks very Rick and Morty ish. I kind of was expecting this to be like, hey, we got these characters who are allowed to be hard R. Let's just make them. Let's make them hard R and and do Rick and Morty. Um, and it's thankfully not that. Uh, I love that they're bringing in the old designs from like Batman the Animated Series. And really playing with the whole span of, of DC adaptations. They're, they're spoofing themselves. They're spoofing nerd culture. But I think most important is what you were touching on with, with Harley Quinn, like being a dimensional character, kind of taking what happened in Birds of Prey and going even further about the breakup. And this, this is a show. It reminds me of, um, nineties MTV cartoons a little more than anything yeah now. it's it very daria ish like yeah it does it has a lot to do with daria i think um and the female relationships are really strong and i mean certain poison ivy i guess when i'm thinking of daria i'm probably thinking of the poison ivy character voiced by lake bell who is like doing daria um <laughs> which is really fun and just like the client i don't I'm trying to think of like breakup sh- comedies that I, I've seen that are, are like this, that are that in your face or that f- blunt about uh, toxic men and uh, how f- far they can push it. Because in this case, the toxic man is the Joker. So he can like rip people's arms off and shoot them in the face and be it's a very, very violent show uh, <laughs> also. So if you are queasy, um, this it gets quite gory. Uh, Harley Quinn has a big hammer and she bashes people with it. Uh I, I gotta recommend this show. It's really, really fun. It is. You say fun and then also graphically violent. I, I like. There's a little bit of disconnect in my brain for that. Really, you don't like seeing um, guys get their faces ripped off and then Joker putting on that uh, flesh mask and being like, "Ha ha." Never like flesh mask. <laughs> Never strong oh, wait, my, anti-flesh I'm sorry, mask. I'm, I'm misremembering. In the first episode, he takes a flesh mask and puts it on his hand and pretends it's a hand puppet. It's not on his face. Well, it is definitely well, it bleeding is, it's on the face a, lot. Uh, it's a but, lot. Yeah, that's. Am I overselling the gore, Dave? Uh, you're right that that scene does happen, but I feel like as the series goes on, they depend on that less and less. And it becomes more things like uh, being able to show like her hitting somebody's knee out of whack in a different way. Or there's a one episode where uh, this old man who's in a wheelchair and his ex-girlfriend have to move like six superhero bodies mm. and they're just like throwing them around. So it's violent and gory, but also they learn how to balance it out. I think with the tone. Harley Quinn is good. Katie consider if you've, Consider. I know you've been a, it's been a long time since you've watched superhero media with this pandemic situation. Maybe you need huh. a costumed caper in your life. Interesting. I have fit. watched the Marvel superheroes, um, and Disney Plus show, which we have talked about, which are like a bunch of like six minute long episodes where Spider Man like gives you a lesson about how to live based on his memories of fighting crime alongside Ant Man. Um, that might be it. Well, here's, so here's one thing that both shows do not have: Jacob Tremblay as Robin. Mm. That is true. Is that a sell? <laughs> what is it with Jacob Tremblay and being associated with like ultraviolence? That's my son for you. He's just really good at it. Whoa, is the color of your-
another pandemic check-in. Because David is not here, I'm going to try to keep everybody on task and make wow. this uh, make this a, a speedy pandemic check-in. First up, a true daily double. Yeah, start the clock. Here we go. Uh, we're going to be talking <laughs> about media we're absorbing uh, through the pandemic. Katie, I hear you've been listening to a podcast you've been enjoying. Yeah, I mean, I've listened to every episode of You Must Remember This. I feel like most people listening to this podcast have listened to it. If you haven't, that's weird. They better. Uh, because it's great. Uh, yeah, it's a great podcast. It's a, it's hosted by Karina Longworth. It's been a lot about classic Hollywood stuff. She's been, I think, in more recent years doing a lot of like theme seasons, like about Jane Fonda and Gene Seberg. Um, she did one on Howard Hughes based on her book. Um, she did one about the Manson family. I'm trying to think about the one before this was. Anyway, the current season. She did Song of the South right before this. Song of the South. Yeah, that was a good one, too. Um, So this current season, which just wrapped up last week, I think, it's about Polly Platt, who was a producer and a production designer um, who uh, the – the series writer calls her the invisible woman because she is one of many, many, many women who has worked in Hollywood who is not, she never directed a film. She, um, like never won an Oscar on her own. So she was kind of like in, very involved in a lot of, uh, very classic movies, including made those made by Peter Bogdanovich when she was married to him in the seventies. Um, and the reason she did this series is I actually, I don't know this, but I assume that like she was given by Polly Platt's daughters, her unfinished autobiography and basically got this entire treasure trove of Hollywood stories and was able to tell this very complete fascinating story about a woman who was like operating in Hollywood at a time when sexism was like not only rampant, but just like defined completely differently than what it is now had this incredible success, had a lot of personal demons she battled in the meantime. Um, I mean, it's a fascinating story both because it's like kind of familiar Hollywood beats about like success and tragedy and like, marriage com- like conflicting on a set and like you know tawdry gossip but also about how being a woman infected all of that and how she is she's a character like many hollywood classic people but also totally unknown by so many people um it's really it's amazing journalism which like this it's been a great podcast for a long time but i'm not sure it's ever like had such an uncovered story before um and i'm just like so grateful for it and i wish that she could do 10 of these because I'm sure there are so many other women who have stories so much like it that we don't know about at all. It yeah. You guys se- listen to it. It sounds more serial level than maybe past. Um, in terms of just like the legwork. Yeah. I mean, it's got interviews in it, which I don't like most of them have never had before. Like you hear her talking to people. Yeah, remember when this podcast like- used to be like Ryan Johnson doing impressions of old celebrities. Wasn't that? I mean, I think like Brian season? Johnson's been on like one. No, like. And our pal Amy he Nicholson might. did voices for the pun. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, she, she might go back to that as far as I know. Oh. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not like investigating a mystery. You know, it, the the details of the life are pretty clear, but it's just a, it's a biography basically in podcast form, which is a really fascinating thing to hear. Yeah, Dave, you listened to it too. I did listen to it. I was like surprised. Well, I mean, the the overall thrust of the entire arc of the season, I think, is really good about how like. She had this narrative she had to fight against that um, she was like the wife of the director. And that's why those films were successful. But she knew being inside of it and anybody that knew about her relationship with Peter Bogdanovich knew that there was like an alchemy between them that like got lost. uh, But she like hopped over. Yeah, He never made a good movie after he left after he left her basically. Right. And then uh, he, she hopped over to like Gracie films and it was interesting to hear how she might've, you know, jump started the Simpsons by accident by gifting a from hell comic strip to James L. Brooks, like little uh, pieces like that. And then they come around to how at like the end of her life she you know had some blind spots but also couldn't get off the hook of the question of her own creativity and whether it was like best under peter or not and i think there's towards the latter episodes there's a section where her friends are telling her like you don't need to mention like peter in your own interviews anymore like people are starting to know who you are (laughs) 
Um, yeah. And then that's really interesting, balanced, I guess, I guess, against some of the classic stories of, like the Civil Shepherd era. Frank Marshall comes off really well as like a really good. Frank Marshall comes off like, really genuine well. Genuine friend. <laughs> Yeah, he was like, he, he like lived in her house and he like got his start with her on Roger Corman movies and just like he gives this like lovely phone. I mean, there's a lot of interview like Danny DeVito shows up briefly, but Frank Marshall's like maybe the biggest power player of the whole thing. He's just like, yeah, we hung out. I saw her flirting with this guy at a party. You're like, wow, Frank Marshall, you were a good friend. Yeah, he seems to be like around her at a period of time where a lot of people were like romantically after her. And Frank Marshall's just yeah. there being being like the rock. Anyway, yeah, it's, yeah, it's been super interesting. And like you were saying, it's um, different from her other work, I think, because there was so much extra journalism layered on top of this, like, you know, prime source uh, to, you know, be able to frame the story this way. I, I yeah, I, I'm interested to see what she does next, because you must remember this. I like it in all flavors. I would love more of this, but I also love, like, the classic the classic recontextualizing like black and white era stuff. I mean, I'm in for all of it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, anything, anything else, uh, catch, catch your attention. This Weren't you week? reading oh. like bad paperbacks? At, uh, yeah. Beach? I read the Pelican brief. <laughs> Should I talk about the about Pelican brief? I feel like if you go to a beach house, you have to read bad books and paperback yeah. there. And this is important. I really feel like everyone deserves to walk into a rental house and be like, what books are here? I'm going to read one of them. I don't know which one it's going to be, but you got to pick it out. And they, they had like a pretty terrible selection of books, and, but they had the Pelican Brief, which I'd never read. I don't think I'd ever read a John Grisham book. I, have I might like I read like when I was a kid, I would I read like Stephen King. I read Michael Crichton, but like never read John Grisham. Um, and I'd never seen the Pelican Brief movie. So I like I knew it was Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington, but like almost literally nothing else. Um, and it's like it's it's kind of funny because it's about this like conspiracy that like goes to the White House, but is like in some ways I mean it involves murder, so it's like some ways worse than the Trump White House, but in other ways you're like oh this seems kind of quaint compared to what we know now. <laughs> um, oh, what? It's murder. interesting that. Oh well. Then. Uh, um, it's interesting that the role so it's written it was written after Time to Kill, so like he was already kind of a hotshot thing, and it feels like the the lead character of this you know, law student, brilliant law student who like uncovers the crime was like written for Julia Roberts basically. Um, but the character that Denzel Washington plays, the like reporter she teams up with, is written as white. So it's it was interesting kind of being like wow. That must be, that's an evidence of what Denzel Washington's star power was at this period of time. And like, I feel like things like that don't happen that much even now. Um, also the cast of the movie, like, it was a really satisfying to like read the book and be like, wow, who plays this like, you know, somewhat minor, like killer character who shows up for half of the book? Oh, it's Stanley Tucci. Wow. I really need to see this movie. Um, and I'm now, I downloaded another John Grisham book on my Kindle, which is not nearly as enjoyable. And now that I'm home from the beach, I'm like not getting You're the same enjoyment out it. of it. That's yeah. Hilarious. I kind of need to like go back into reading real books. John Grisham um, is a fascinating figure. Um, he did a really fantastic interview with Long Form, the Long Form oh. podcast back in 2017. Um, huh. Not someone that they usually, they usually do like magazine writers and pod, other journalist podcasters. So, but they interviewed John Grisham and he is uh, unabashedly himself, which is like, I write entertaining novels. I write one or two novels a year um, based on whatever crimes I've read about in my newspaper. And I write them so that they are hits. And yeah. like A Time to Kill was his first book, I believe, and was a flop. Um, and it just like wound him up to such a degree that he's like, I must write the most commercial book. And now he's a bazillionaire, obviously. Yeah. And um, it's just fascinating to hear someone talk like the artlessness of John Grisham. Um, obviously, he 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 writes the books. They're coherent. You read one. And yeah, they're, they're completely enjoyable. So, you know, that that's always the big question about like creating art. Does a John Grisham novel count as art if he like walks into it like, this is my job. I'm going to make a story that's coherent and entertain you at the beach. Um, and then when you go home, you'll have want nothing to do with me. <laughs> I just <laughs> think be embarrassed we ever met. Do we call that person an artist? I mean, he's clearly, he's a novelist, but does that are all novelist artists? Food for thought, everybody. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed the Pelican <laughs> Brief. Listen to this podcast if you have ever read a John Grisham novel or not. I really... And, I need and to figure out... To our podcast. I need to see if the Pelican Brief is streaming, because I feel like that would be a good, it's like... like an Amazon Prime go-to. Yeah. Or maybe I'm thinking of The Rainmaker. That's uh, That's been staring me down in my Amazon queue for a little while. Maybe it is I'll on Prime Video for three bucks. Hey. Ooh. 
Patches. Europe. What have you been doing in this pandemic? I'm still playing Paper Mario. Dave, how are, are you uh, through Paper Mario? <laughs> Uh, I'm Katie at back so we can talk about uh, Paper Mario. Now. I'm at, yeah, I'm at wait, the Dave, ice. Is Dave gonna do the pose again? <laughs> oh, I'm in the ice. ice. I'm not. I'm at the ice volumental. Uh, the oh, wow. fire volumental battle took me an hour. Whoa! Because he regenerates fully if you try to kill him too early, and I did that twice. Puzzles. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm. Wow. Uh, that sucks, and this game is fun. <laughs> I mean... Uh, <laughs> Paper Mario Corner. I, I just got to the part... Slight spoilers. Uh, if you n- will never play this game, you will not care about this. But if you are playing it, you probably still don't care. Um, but if you're that particular person who might be worried about Paper Mario spoilers, I'm flagging this. I'm very worried. I just got to the sad part of the game. Um, mm-hmm. where the So at some point, Mario uh, recruits a friend, Katie. His name is Bob-omb. Um He's a bomb. Okay. And um, he has amnesia, so we don't know what happened to him. But he's he was in like Toad Town or some shit. And no, he ran away from Toad Town to find himself, and we discovered him on the path. Whatever, he's lost his memories. Uh, unfortunately, our paper origami friend, whose name I do not care to remember because she's annoying. Um, no offense to her, Olivia. Uh, Olivia, she gets trapped under a boulder, Katie. And uh, mm. to, fi- to figure out how to save her, uh, Bomb and Mario go to a boat. I don't remember what. Oh, uh, there's something on the boat that Bomb thinks we need to get. Anyway, we go to the boat and we get it. And he Bob-omb needs to get his he wick. Needs. He needs to get his wick. I know he gets a wick. I was going to be surprised part of the story. <laughs> oh, oh. Anyway, he okay. does get his wick. Mm. But on this boat, we've learned that he was actually on this boat when he lost his memory, and all his friends were there, and the boat's destroyed, and it's really haunting. And but he won't tell us exactly why because he doesn't remember. But uh, when we go to the uh when we complete the boat mission there's like fireworks and he starts remembering his his what happened and um it turns out all of his friends were attacked by a squid and they all sacrificed themselves they were bombs katie and they they decided Mm -hmm. to blow themselves up in order to try and defeat the squid they didn't really defeat it uh they still got destroyed but bomb um, our friend got thrown in the water and lost his fuse you see um but now that he realizes who he is he's going to light his fuse and blow up the boulder that's on top of our friend olivia and sacrifice him he kills himself katie so this is a real bing bong situation. Holy shit. Yes, it's it's a real it bing really bong situation. And then, and then the, <laughs> the mission after that, after Bomb Mom has killed himself to save Olivia, she's so upset that she goes hiding and you spend like 40 minutes finding her. Wow. Wow. What a game. This is for kids, I think. Um, anyway, that was tragic. Is that what I've been doing with my time? Not really, but this is in Paper Mario <laughs> Corner. <laughs> Without David here, I feel like I can go on that tangent. Um, oh yeah, because David's so opposed to video game tangents. That's right. <laughs> he he would never stand for this. Katie, on the other no. hand, now that she's back, she's here for it. Right, um, I came back for the Paper Mario content. I've been watching fucked up movies. Um, well, I've been watching The Last Dance. I think I talked about that last week, maybe a little bit, but um, uh, we don't need to get into that. Everyone watched it already. I'm catching up on the Zeitgeist. What a phenomenal documentary. I don't really care about Michael Jordan, but I care about shooting hoops. Um, I watched Akira. Katie, have you seen Akira? No, I've not seen Akira. Why'd you watch Akira? Because I just, we, I've been rewatching movies. I have something to do each week. I'm assigned. Well, I mean, I didn't ask, why did you watch a movie? Why did you pick Akira? (laughs) I didn't pick it. Someone else picked it, but I'm glad they did. Um, because wow, Akira is the, the, the film of the moment. Um, I don't think I've seen the movie all the way through since college, where I definitely watched it dubbed so it was a pleasure that it is i definitely subbed. thought you were gonna say stoned when you started saying that word i could have I feel like you said anyway. both probably was <laughs> yep, both. yeah um actually i wasn't smoking weed in college i gotta be honest dad if you're listening to this i didn't i didn't touch that shit in college. <laughs> um i drank uh <laughs> I, it's on it has subs on hulu uh thanks to like funimation deals or whatever and what a pleasure because um i, I took a few seconds of the dub performance and it's horrible um i'm glad that it's preserved in its its immaculate form on hulu it's really high res the the animation this is film is from 1988 um it is one it was at the time the most expensive animated film ever and it clearly shows um dave animation nerd this movie is definitely 24 frames a second like no skimping on the drawings um and i thought what what, what is is it on the ones uh, is that the, right uh, there, the correct terminology? A, a lot of it is on the ones, yes. Oh, uh, yeah. More than more than it needs to be. 
Oh yeah, definitely more than it needs to be. But the, that meets the animation is super fluid. It's super detailed, and and the budget. If you go dig around, it's just like ballooned. This movie, no movie could ever be like this ever again because no budget would ever allow to be this they, blown up. Uh, they did maybe. this. They did this cool thing, Katie, uh, which gives this really distinctive look, uh, but doubled the time of every time they needed to use vehicles because they would shoot the scene. But then also cut out the lights on all the cells and then expose a mat of just the lights. So the film has like this light bleed around it's all the motorcycle glowing lights. glowing and blooming. Yeah. It wow. is pretty great. Yeah, it's very, very cool. Um, so it is a spectacle. And this movie wouldn't, you know, without this movie, The Matrix doesn't exist. Quentin Tarantino probably doesn't exist. Like, uh, Metal Gear Solid probably doesn't exist. All of these, anything post-apocalyptic after 1988 couldn't, has, owes everything to Akira. Um, and in that way, it's almost been cannibalized so much that you watch it and you're like, is this working? Like, does this movie work anymore? I think about, uh, uh Dune and I'm really, Excited for this Dune movie that's coming out, but I, I'm worried that no coming, one's going to mm, give a is shit. Is it coming out? <laughs> coming out mm. in, the, in an unspecified date in the future. Uh, yeah. It exists. It's definitely... Yeah, it does exist. It will come out form. at some time. Um, but I worry that that movie has been so cannibalized by like Star Wars and even Avatar, James Cameron. Like, Do, uh, do any of... Does this movie do we still a place in culture? Do we still call that getting John carter uh, I was just going to say John Carter. Even John Carter feels like it ripped off Dune because John Carter had those like dragonfly spaceships and Dune has dragonfly spaceships and everyone's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's not going to go well. I don't think I'm excited for Dune, but I don't think it's going to go well. Anyway, Akira has a similar, like even shots of uh, a skyscraper with glass shards falling from it. I'm like, man, the matrix really just ripped this movie to shreds. It, it owes everything to this. Um, so I was worried in the beginning when we kind of explore Neo Tokyo um, in the year 2019, the year before the Olympics, by the way, according to the movie, uh, Mm -hmm. the Japanese Olympics were happening in 2020 in the world of Akira. Hmm. Weird. Uh, Were they supposed to be, they were supposed to be in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a weird coincidence that is now fortified in uh, Akira. But those Olympics aren't happening in 2020. And also the world is complete chaos in the world of uh, of Akira. Uh, There's been world war three, no one has learned their lesson. They're building psychic weapons out of uh, little children. And um, unfortunately for one biker gang, I mean, this is the plot if, you, if you've never seen Akira. Um, he, run, he runs into a psychic child and develops psychic powers uh, beyond his uh, mental capabilities. And he becomes a giant blubber boy is the really short, crass way of putting Akira. It's a phenomenal movie. It's all about the police state. It's all about government authoritarian government and systematic failure and being kind of a wayward kid i think the kind of interesting comment that i saw beyond the obvious kind of post-apocalyptic tropes is that in a society where everyone is full of rage even the people rebelling against the authoritarian government lose their way and just become uh, bursts of rage and full of violence and cannot like they the kids in this movie go to college and go to school and like but what's the point they don't learn they're just like so uninvolved with everything all they can do is commit violence and commit havoc and be rebels and everyone in this movie seems really lost um and all kind of slowly descending upon another apocalyptic moment. Um, it's adapted from a manga that is much, much longer and you feel those plot holes and I'm excited to go back and maybe read the manga. But yeah, this movie is astonishing. It's, it's part of cinema history. Katie, I demand you watch it. I should watch it. Yeah. It's on Hulu. Do you watch, you watch a lot of anime, so I don't know if this is your thing. Yeah. A lot of anime. Uh, (laughs) no, I do not watch anime. Dave, when was the last time you saw Akira? Oh man. Uh, at some point in college, and just purely for like animation standpoints, because I remember watching it for a story. It was the definitely the dubbed version. It was probably a VHS tape, but it's got like drilled in my brain just the at the end, just Tetsuo Kaneda, just back and forth as he's growing into a blob man. And then uh, the giant bear made out of other tiny bears mm. held together by milk. There's a lot of nightmare visions in this movie. Too. Really it's stuck a with scary, me. Scary, scary movie. 
Um, and it's kind of been warped, I think, by like hot topic culture. Well, if you it can has go like go in a bubble and watch this, it'd be good. It has this interesting idea that someone tries to communicate to uh, Tetsuo that like if you were somehow made an ant and gave him the abilities of a man, that the ant would just like freak out and self-emulate, and that's what happens. Humanity reaches its end, and we're unable to evolve, so we literally grow to, like, eat ourselves by poisoning our children. It's really interesting. Yeah, I think you in particular should go back to this day, because I know you love um, Shin Godzilla, which feels like, like it owes a lot to Akira as well. Just, like, there are scenes in Akira that I did not remember very well of, of people sitting in a boardroom being like, why did you... What are we doing? Like, what are we supposed to do about these psychic kids? And what are we supposed to do about this rampaging psychic man? And um, is it your fault? I'm going to blame you and hope it all goes away. Um, and that's the stuff that, for, for all the, like, body horror and misogyny that runs rampant in the streets of Dia Tokyo, watching these men just be like, uh, I, I blame you over there. That's the saddest part. <laughs> that hits home. All right, Akira. How about you, Dave? Paper Mario. What have I been doing? So I started shorter series. I started Shit's Creek finally to you know catch up with with the end, which is finally coming to the U.S. right now, I believe. Uh, if it hasn't recently ended, I know it's recently ended on Pop TV where it airs in Canada. I just don't know. Uh, no, Pop TV is where it airs here. No, oh, it airs here on Pop TV, right? And but it's on Netflix as well, which is where many many people have watched it. Yes, that's where I've uh, managed to finally pick it up. Been enjoying it. I was not expecting that dry of humor <laughs> at the beginning. I think um, it really is a show that you uh, get to know the characters better as they're sort of becoming better people, and the joy in both those things happening makes the jokes funnier. Uh, but mm -hmm. when you're sort of like starting out with it, I was like, Oh, this is just, it's just going to be rich assholes acting like rich assholes and not changing. And it really is sort of like the slow creep of change, uh, that made everything funnier. So I'm enjoying Shit's Creek. We're doing Harley Did Quinn. You watch Shit's Creek. I watched, let's see. I've watched most of Shit's Creek. I found it like, a little repetitive, even yes. after it starts getting like a, a heart to it. Like I like the characters. I find it funny, but like it doesn't change or progress enough for me to like want to keep with it in I, a weird I way. I don't totally understand the phenomenon of, um, of Schitt's Creek. I think some of it is funny. I think Catherine O'Hara is a god. Yeah. Um, she is a, she's, she's operating beyond human Levy's capacity on that show. I'm not Dan sure. Levy's really funny. Uh, that's where I'm gonna. Yeah, like yeah, 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 a little bit. Not, I'm not the biggest fan, and I and and the and the other sister is. I'm just kind of like, eh, or these uh, Catherine O'Hare is the funny one. Yeah, but it's also easy to watch. Yeah, it's easy to watch. <laughs> we don't have a lot of like cozy sitcoms right now. Like, yeah. it's like filling the Parks and Rec void. I think in a lot of ways. Um, and I I don't think I can follow anybody who wants that. Yeah, not at all. It's like it goes down easy. You could easily watch like seven episodes in a row and call it a night, and yeah, you would not be unhappy. Like Dave. Yeah, that's a that's, that's, that's a great way to do it. Yeah, that's how you do it. And then I've also been listening to a podcast called Origins, whose sixth season was all about the making of Almost Famous. Oh. Who's the host of that? He James did the Andrew SNL Miller oral history book, right? He did, yes. Oh, yeah. And and, his, uh, and the first podcast was SNL too. Uh, so this is like the sixth season. Let me look here. If, what the other seasons were? Uh, season one was Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh yes, 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 and that was really good because he got a lot of Larry interview on that tape. That was awesome. Yeah, season two is ESPN. Uh, did not, CS did not listen to that. Season three was apparently some sort of Alabama football team. Season four. <laughs> Is it the Alabama football team? Probably. Wow. Go, go Bamas. It's just called Alabama. Oh, nice. Anyway, and then, um, uh, season four was SNL. Season five was Sex in the City. And season six was Almost Famous. And it's pretty good. I mean, it only has like 10 or 12 sources. 
but they're all the sources that you'd want to hear from and Jimmy Fallon. So you got like, (laughs) (laughs) wait, what? What does Jimmy Fallon have to say about Almost Famous? Well, he was really good friends with Jason Lee and plays the manager, the touring manager at one point. So he turns his like 10 minutes of screen time into basically a part of every episode of the six episodes. But, you know, I guess if you have Jimmy Fallon, let Jimmy Fallon be Jimmy Fallon. Um, The nice thing about this is uh everybody you want you like you hear from like kate hudson and christopher columbus and francis mcdormand and christopher columbus involved in almost famous did he produce it christopher columbus was not the right the right you mean cameron crow cameron crow thank you (laughs) (laughs) too many c's man i wish you'd heard from christopher columbus though Um, uh the actual rent or or a the explorer Christopher Columbus where he could be like, hey, why'd you kill all those people in the Bahamas? Yeah, yeah exactly. Put my statue down. When? <laughs> um, uh, they it, it, they have all they all have like recognizable voices, but because this isn't like a novel, uh, there uh, a lot of times he's bouncing back and forth between stories where you have to self identify who's talking, which isn't my favorite thing, which is why I probably like his books better than this podcast, but. Did learn a lot of cool, fun things about Almost Famous and the way they were able to sort of like put it together and that the studio didn't let him do any reshoots and that they had to pay for the shot of his hand, Cameron Crowe's hands at the beginning. And uh, lots of good stuff from Francis McDormand, who, um, you know, apparently had like a five-year-old when she filmed it and now has like a teenager and revisited with her teenager. And our friend Pedro Cohen, whose Instagram we... Uh- <laughs> Whoa, Doc! He's in a- <laughs> Am I? Are we not supposed to say you're giving away our friend Pedro? Oh. Bleep! You, you should actually. We should bleep that uh, in the podcast to pretend like we're friends. Fair. In real life. Either way, um, uh, it's a pretty good, pretty good oral history, and an oral history with it's in podcast form. And it sounds like the people that made it actually still genuinely like the movie, which is kind of what you want. Not that I, you know, wanted a podcast about people talking shit about movies, but in terms of, um, it's very, especially comparing something to like the, you must remember this Polly Platt story. Uh, it's much more about celebrating the things that went right with the Hollywood machine for once. Um, or at least that's how it's framed. Uh, even though the movie was technically a bomb because it was beat by the exorcist re-released its first weekend, but fun, fun things to remember about almost famous. Maybe you want to watch almost famous. I'll probably do that this week or untitled. We'll see whichever one's cheaper to rent. And that was the pandemic check-in. That does it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week. David won't be. He's not back, right? Will be. The plan Uh, is to have him back. Let's not make any promises. (laughs) We hope David will be back. We have reason to believe he will. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. We have a website if you need to use a browser to find our podcasts. Fightingintheworm.com where you can listen to the episodes and you can easily share them with people who would fall in love with this lovable cast. I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA7E. You can also leave us a review on iTunes where we could read at the top of the show instead of just, you know, listening in on the update of how our lives are going and how we feel about this crippling virus. Also, if you want to hear me talk about things that aren't any of those things but are the television show Lost, I have good news for you. I host a podcast called The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast. We recently passed the halfway point. You know what that means? It all gets like better before season 6b so the fun stuff's happening now storm lost rewatch podcast uh i'm katie rich you can find me at vanityfair.com and on the little gold men podcast over there where this week i'm talking to uh, gina davis the founder of the bentonville film festival about how they are having a film festival right now wow. which is uh fascinating um and we're talking about other stuff on the podcast this week but i can't think of right now 
You can also find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can talk to us about whatever you want or answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of an American pickle, what movie from the last year would make the most sense to somebody trapped in pickle brine for 100 years? <laughs> Specifically pickle brine, no other substance, right? That's nope. right. Yeah. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. <laughs>